Welcome to the Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Sponsored by the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm Georgine Rice. This week, with the election behind us, the Senate advances the Respect for Marriage Act. Don't be fooled by the name. It's not marriage equality. It's marriage redefinition. We'll get analysis from Albert Moeller. The number is 12 Republicans who voted for the so-called Respect for Marriage Act. Including a reminder of what marriage is. Marriage is and can only be the union of a man and a woman according to Scripture. And reflections from my own program on the primacy of Christ even in an election season. I know that politics has become too important to me when I'm willing to speak evil of someone else who is made in the image of God if he or she disagrees with my political viewpoint. All this and more, I'm Georgine Rice, coming to you from Portland and my home station of KPDQ. You can hear my own program live each weekday afternoon on 93.9 FM here in Portland and online via our website at kpdq.com and also through the TuneIn radio app. Thanks for joining us. We'll begin with Congress. Yes, the exact composition of the next Congress is still up in the air, but that uncertainty doesn't change the realities of the political calendar. Between now and January 3rd of next year, Congress is in what's called a lame duck session. And in a lame duck session of Congress, you need to watch for unexpected mischief. Senators who were just reelected know they have six years before they face voters again. Senators and congressmen who lost or are retiring know they can get away with, well, just about anything. Well, they shouldn't get away with the Respect for Marriage Act. And you and I, we shouldn't be fooled by the deceptive name. On Wednesday, 12 Republican senators voted with Democrats to advance this distressing piece of legislation. We'll start our coverage with Bob Bernie, my colleague in Columbus, Ohio, on 880 a.m. A bipartisan group of senators announced Monday that they reached agreement on revised legislation that would enshrine marriage equality. Mm, Yeah, marriage equality. Please remember... When the liberal left gives a name to a piece of legislation, it actually means exactly the opposite, and that's true here. It's not marriage equality. It's marriage redefinition. Anyway, a bipartisan group of senators reached an agreement uh, that would enshrine marriage equality into federal law and provide protections for religious liberties. Mm Mm-hmm. A joint statement from the group of five senators involved in the negotiations announced that they have crafted common-sense language to confirm that this legislation fully respects and protects Americans' religious liberties and diverse beliefs while leaving intact the core mission of the legislation to protect marriage equality. And sadly... Even though it looks like the Republicans are going to have a very, very small majority in the House, there's a very good possibility that there are enough wishy-washy Republicans that this could pass the House of Representatives. And we know that the present occupant of the White House would sign it into law immediately and proudly. If that happens, I hope it doesn't, but I think there's a very good chance that it will. You know what will happen. The minute this legislation is signed into law, 
there is going to be some same-sex couple that will go to a local pastor or a bakery or whatever and demand, perform our wedding ceremony, make us a cake or whatever, and that pastor, that baker, that photographer will go, is going to say, well, no, I am protected by the Marriage Equality Act. And they're going to say, oh, no, that part of the legislation is not constitutional. And this will immediately be challenged. It'll go to some radical leftist federal judge, and some leftist federal judge will rule that the portion of this legislation that will cause Republicans to vote for it will be ruled unconstitutional, and you're going to see pastors, ministers forced by this law to perform wedding ceremonies that they have convictions against. Mark my word, it will happen. Bob Bernie is right. If this bill is signed into law, whether it's in two weeks or two years, there will be a legal challenge aiming to coerce Christian institutions to capitulate on its convictions on marriage and human sexuality. The reason this matters so much is because neither Democrats or Republicans created the institution of marriage. Here's Albert Moeller from his briefing podcast. Well, now we know the number is 12. The number is 12 Republicans who voted for the so-called Respect for Marriage Act, demonstrating a profound disrespect both for marriage and for religious liberty. Anyone who would vote or move to subvert the institution of marriage is no conservative. You can have someone who claims to be conservative on fiscal and on other political issues, but if they are subverting the institution that makes human civilization possible, then they are no conservative. They are not acting to conserve what must be conserved if civil society is to continue, be healthy, and flourish. But that is exactly what happened. That is an extreme dereliction of duty when it came to 12 Republicans voting with all 50 Democrats for this Orwellian-named Respect for Marriage Act. Let me just remind you, there are at least two huge problems with this legislation. Number one, the very essence of the thing. The purpose of this bill, make no mistake, the purpose of this bill is to put the full faith and authority of the United States government behind the subversion of marriage, the denial that marriage is and can only be the union of a man and a woman according to Scripture. It explicitly puts the United States Congress, and thus, once the President of the United States, Joe Biden, signs it, as he is eager to do, it puts the United States federal government in the position of opposing the scriptural and creation-revealed understanding of marriage, the only definition of marriage, by the way, that leads to the future of civilization, otherwise known as babies. The other big problem with this legislation is the damage to religious liberty. And even as you have people claiming in that bipartisan panel, claiming that all the concerns about religious liberty had been resolved and alleviated, it has done no such thing. It was a fig leaf, and no one should take it with intellectual or moral seriousness. It was intended to give political cover in order to gain enough Republican votes in order to overcome the threat of a filibuster to get the bill to the floor and eventually to see the bill passed. 
In this case, it's important to recognize that Senator Mike Lee of Utah put out a statement saying, quote, I offered to support the bill if the sponsors would include my amendment to prohibit the government from removing tax-exempt status based on religious beliefs about same-sex marriage for or against. The sponsors adamantly refused even to consider that. Senator Lee then asked the question, why? Well, here's where we need to understand that there never really was any serious protection of religious liberty in this so-called amendment. The resolution didn't resolve anything. And the very fact that Senator Lee would say that he had offered to support the amendment if it would make clear that there would be no removing of tax-exempt status based on religious beliefs about same-sex marriage, the fact that the bipartisan group turned that down, well, that should tell you everything you need to know. Now, remember, you need 60 votes in order to achieve closure to move a bill to the floor. That makes this procedural vote the most important vote of all. All 50 Democratic senators voted for it, given the position, given the platform of the Democratic Party. No surprise there. But to overcome a filibuster, at least 10 Republican votes were needed. But the supporters of this legislation didn't get 10. They got 12 The 12 senators in this line of infamy include Susan Collins of Maine, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, Rob Portman of Ohio, Mitt Romney of Utah, Tom Tillis of North Carolina, Roy Blunt of Missouri, Cynthia Loomis of Wyoming, Richard Burr of North Carolina, Shelley Moore Capito of West Virginia, Dan Sullivan of Alaska, Joni Ernst of Iowa, Todd Young of Indiana. Now, what ties all of those members of the Republican conference in the Senate together? Well, there are a few issues you need to note. Number one, several of the people on this list are retiring. Thus, politically, they have nothing to lose because they're never going to face voters again. So they voted, and they voted for the redefinition of marriage. And that means that 12 Republican senators have basically looked at the Republican base and said, we really don't care about your stated convictions about marriage because we see the way of the political future. That also gets to something else. When you look at Senator Portman, I discussed the fact that What you have there is a family situation, what I call the Republican version of moral relativism. A relative comes out of the closet. When it comes to Roy Blunt, very interesting, or even others who on this list might not face voters again, the big question is, did they vote because they believe that history is going to vindicate them? Is history supposedly moving in the direction where in a moderate or short amount of time, people are going to look at that vote and say, you know, voting for the codification of same-sex marriage, that was the right thing to do. Now, here's where I want to warn Christians. The moment we enter into that calculation, we give the store away in moral terms. The moment we decide, you know, I want to look good in the eyes of my descendants on an issue like this, and we abandon biblical conviction, we compromise moral conviction in order to put ourselves, at least we might believe, in a better moral light or political light is judged by our descendants and generations beyond us, well, the moment you do that, you give away any current moral responsibility. You also, and this is what Christians and conservatives must recognize, this is central to what defines conservatism, you are also giving away your patrimony. Because the moral continuity that conservatives are supposed to prize means that we as Christians want to hold to the very same doctrine and the very same morality as the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ in the first century when it comes to the issues on which Scripture is abundantly clear. 
There will be a lot more to know about the situation in the Senate. And by the way, the actual Senate floor vote on the so-called Respect for Marriage Act could take place in the next several days, but that would require an unusual procedural move that would mean that all 100 senators would have to vote to move the bill to the floor. It's unlikely you're going to get 100 votes in order to do that. So on a more normal Senate calendar, this bill is expected to come up after the Thanksgiving break. And just keep this in mind. 62 senators have already, in effect, voted yes. That includes the 50 Democrats and 12 Republicans. All that is needed once the vote comes to the floor is 50 senators plus one. They are already 11 positive votes beyond that. So now we understand all that is left when it comes to the action of the United States Senate is a bare formality. But we need to note a very tragic formality. And once again, we need to be clear, we'll be taking names. Coming up, perspective. Perspective on post-election politics and faith. I know that politics has become too important to me when I'm willing to speak evil of someone else who is made in the image of God if he or she disagrees with my political viewpoint. And the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy enters our 25th anniversary year, we've remained committed to a single truth of world history, that ideas have consequences. To understand these ideas and their impact on today's politics and to test them quantitatively requires the unique curriculum we offer on our Malibu, California campus. Apply now for fall classes at pepperdine.edu SPP. That's pepperdine.edu SPP. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. I hope you were engaged in our recent election. I hope you were familiar with the candidates and the initiatives on your ballot. And I hope you voted. If you did, you'll inevitably find yourself disappointed. I hope you have a good, healthy Christian perspective on the role of politics and faith. We are citizens of what Augustine called two cities, the city of man, which is temporal, and the city of God, which is eternal. We want to be faithful in our citizenship here in the city of man, but we must also be known by our love and faithful witness as citizens of the city of God to bear witness to a world in desperate need of a savior. In the midst of post-election uncertainty and frustration, I encourage you not to lose sight of what matters most. If you're a believer, your ultimate allegiance is to the city of God and to reflect the directives of its sovereign. I close my own program with a challenge that helped me retain or regain a Christ-centered perspective in a politically divisive season. I wanted to end with something Pastor Greg Allen sent me from Bethany Bible Church. Uh, He's written it um, some time ago, but it applies every time we have a political season coming around. In the email he wrote to me, he wrote that I believe that Christians must be involved in every meaningful area of life in this world, but how they do so needs to be radically different from everyone else. As followers of Jesus, we are to be ambassadors for the Lord Jesus in the way we speak our minds and become involved in the things that touch all of us, including politics. Uh, And so he's written, I know politics has become too important to me. When getting the right person into office is more of a priority to me than being the right person before God. When an undesirable political decision, policy, or outcome is allowed to rob me of my joy and peace in Christ. And he accompanies each one of these 
uh, statements with scripture. The first, when getting the right person into office is more of a priority to me than being right uh, before God. No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy. Psalm thirty-three, sixteen and 18 or through 18. And the other, when an undesirable political decision, policy or outcome is allowed to rob me of my joy and peace, I know I, politics has become too important to me. Be anxious for nothing. There's no asterisk with an exception. But it goes on to say, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 6. I know politics has become too important to me when I refuse to conform to God's expressed will if it means that I would have to change some of my cherished political views. Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is a good and acceptable and perfect, the will of God. I know that um, politics has become too important to me when I'm willing to speak evil of someone else who is made in the image of God if he or she disagrees with my political viewpoint. And then he makes reference to the scripture, James 3, 8 through 10. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison, with it, we bless our God and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the uh, image of God. Out of the same mouth proceeds blessings and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Again, James 3, 8 through 10. When I choose to ignore God's revealed truth, if that truth is denied or opposed by my party's political platform, I might be just a little too uh, wound up in politics. Acts four nineteen through 20. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Acts four, nineteen through 20. When I find myself too closely aligned with ungodly people on the basis of shared political objectives, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3. When political concerns take up the time, energy, and resources that rightfully belong only to God— Remembering Matthew twenty two twenty one, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. I know politics has become too important to me when I depend more on political and governmental programs to meet my needs than I do on God's sovereign provision. Philippians four nineteen, and my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I know I'm, well, too wound up in politics when my opposition to any government policy causes me to harden my heart toward my neighbor's real need. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his, his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? First John three seventeen. And when I believe that Jesus' command to love my neighbor is better accomplished by a social program than in me, well, I might... Uh, 
I have a precarious relationship with politics. I know politics has become too important to me. Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 40. When I care more about protecting a perishable earthly treasure than I care about building up my treasure in heaven, well, politics may be just a little too important to me. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew six nineteen through 21. I, um, I know politics has become too important to me when after I'm finished participating in an argument with uh, about politics, I feel, well, rather sullied or soiled, if you will. Ephesians four twenty nine through 30, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. When I make this earthly kingdom so much of a priority that I give second place to living for the kingdom of God, which will endure forever. But Matthew six thirty three reminds us, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And when I find that I have more passion for temporal social uh, policies than I do with eternal souls, well, maybe I'm um, politics has become too important to me. Matthew sixteen twenty six. or what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And finally, I know politics has become too important to me when in an irreverent spirit before God, I began to speak evil of the leaders he has placed over me. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of his people or your people. Exodus twenty two, twenty eight. Seeking balance, understanding, marching orders from uh, the one who has assigned us as ambassadors is our role now. In light of decisions you may agree with or oppose, in view of people that you may embrace or reject in terms of their public policy, we remain the same ambassadors and representatives of Christ. And we do well to remember that in this very contentious season in a very divided country. Coming up, forgiveness. If you grant forgiveness first, you'll start to feel it. But if you wait to feel it before you grant it, you'll wait forever. Tim Keller, when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. It's a look at today's most compelling stories and provides responses from key conservatives in media and politics. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Georgine Rice. I take great comfort in knowing that whatever happens, my sins have been forgiven, and I have been reconciled to God through His Son, Jesus Christ. 
His work on my behalf has granted me peace with God and a life beyond this life, which is more glorious than words can express. At the same time, an eternal perspective gives the power to look at others with grace and mercy, and when necessary, forgiveness. I have to admit that the forgiveness I've received is not always easy to grant to others. Maybe you can relate. Tim and Kathy Keller, they talked about it with John Hall and Kathy Emmons on Word 101.5 FM in Pittsburgh. Kathy, how do, have you looked at forgiveness over the evolution of your marriage? Well, you know, when you're in a marriage, you get to know the worst about a person. And the definition of marriage is pretty much you get to know everything about them and you still love them. Well, how do you still love them when you really see some of the stuff that's not very uh, attractive or even bearable in some cases? I have to go back to Matthew 18, where I turn around and I look at God and say, you know, no matter how angry I am about this or that that Tim has done or said or been, I've been far worse to you, God. I have ignored you. I have taken your blessings for granted. I have treated you like a vending machine. Give me this, give me that, give me, you know, and every way that I have treated God just so far outweighs Mm -hmm. anything that anybody, Tim first and anybody else that second and 50th and 100th, has ever done to me that how can I stay mad at them when I realize that if it wasn't for God's forgiveness, I would be sunk. Right. So is forgiveness an event or is it a process or is it the two things interconnecting with each other, Tim? I would say it's first of all an event and then a process and don't get those two reversed. I'll show you why. Most people say until I feel forgiven, Mm. forgiving, in other words, my anger goes away, I really can't forgive. So they feel like I got to go through the process of forgiving before I actually grant forgiveness. Mm-hmm. I'm saying that'll never happen <laughs> because you'll stay angry. But to me, you do you start with the event, and the event is a commitment not to seek revenge, not to pay back, in big ways or little ways, and to turn your own mind away from constantly rehearsing the videos of what what the person did, which is one of the ways you nurse your feelings like I was hurt and I was injured and all that. You you feel kind of noble when you think about how you've been hurt. And there's something about the human heart that likes actually almost wallowing in the fact that I was hurt. I was hurt. And to me, the event is to say, because I'm a sinner saved by grace, I'm not only not going to seek revenge, but I'm not going to keep thinking about it like this. And if you promise that, that's going to be really hard. In fact, you will fail sometimes. But if that's your commitment, give it a few weeks. If you grant forgiveness first, you'll start to feel it. But if you wait to feel it before you grant it, you'll wait forever. So is this a fake it till you make it scenario? You're not faking it because you acknowledge the anger. You're not faking it. But the point is that there's an action and there's a feeling, and you're going to give the action before you have the feeling. Mm-hmm. You know, It's not the same as saying to a person, I love you, when they don't love you. And yet, my wife will be pretty quick to tell you, and you all know, that in marriage, very often you should be loving to your spouse even when you don't particularly feel loving. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that's faking it. That's doing what you should do. So it's basically forgiving first, and then the feeling generally comes later. Is an apology necessary for forgiveness? Well, now that's a really good question. It's a heck of it's a lot easier to forgive somebody who's repentant yeah. and has said, I'm sorry. But Mark chapter eleven twenty five does say, if you stand, this is Jesus talking, mm-hmm. by the way, if you stand and you're praying and you realize you have something against anybody, forgive them. Now, Luke 17 says, if a person repents, forgive them. And some people see that as a contradiction. It's not. In Luke 17, reconciliation, where you get back with the person, 
that's impossible unless the person who did the wrong doing repents. But you can forgive internally, even if the other person doesn't repent, though it's a lot harder. Tim, you talk in your book a little about the role that Christianity played in introducing forgiveness to the wider culture. Can you talk about that? Well, forgiveness actually, it's not a virtue in the Greeks and the Romans. And the reason was they lack two things that the Bible gives you. One is they lack the idea that all people are equal in dignity, and they also lack the idea that all people are equally flawed. Mm. And so if you're a virtuous person, you look down at people of lower social status, of lower honor, and if someone wronged you, either you didn't let it bother you because you were way above them, or you just, you killed them. <laughs> this was a shame and honor culture, and you would take vengeance on them. And the idea of forgiving, it's just not there in the Greeks and Romans. I read, I studied this. They did believe in what they called excusing as a way of showing what a big person you are, you know, what a, what a magnanimous person you are. It's a way of showing off your virtue by saying, I excuse you. But that's not forgiving. Forgiving is obviously saying, this was a wrong, but I'm not going to pay you back for it. Hmm. So anyway, it's, it's fascinating. It really wasn't until the Bible comes along that the human race sees forgiveness as a virtue. There's a lot more to this rich conversation on forgiveness. You can find it at ChristianOutlook.com. Coming up... We're talking about the Gospels very much from a Jewish point of view. We're looking at specific issues. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy enters our 25th anniversary year, we've remained committed to a single truth of world history, that ideas have consequences. To understand these ideas and their impact on today's politics, and to test them quantitatively, requires the unique curriculum we offer on our Malibu, California campus. Apply now for fall classes at pepperdine.edu spp. That's pepperdine.edu spp. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. I hope the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, are much loved in your home as they are in mine. I love to read and reread this beautiful account of the life and earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. Though widely read here in the West, these books are born out of Judaism. Jesus was the rabbi who changed everything. We can understand the Gospels in a new way when we see them in light of their Jewish roots. Craig Evans edited the Handbook on the Jewish Roots of the Gospel, he was a guest on my program. Can you explain what these handbooks on the Jewish roots of Jesus, um, how that is intended to be used to enhance our understanding of and appreciation of who Jesus is? Oh, happy to. You know, the Christian church is overwhelmingly Gentile or non-Jewish. You're talking about two billion Christians and a vast majority don't know much about Judaism. And, of course, the Jesus movement was very much a a Jewish movement, and so the Gospels were that way, too. And so for people to read the New Testament, the first handbook had to do with just the whole idea of the Christian church, the New Testament, everything from a Jewish point of view. It was so well-received, and there was so much interest, we decided to issue a new handbook that was focused just on the Gospels. Of course, the Gospels tell the story of Mm -hmm. Jesus. And so, you know, the things we're talking about, anybody would have known in the first century. But we don't know it now because time has gone by. The Jewish element has receded to the back. Things are forgotten. Things are not understood. 
people don't know Hebrew, they don't read the Old Testament in the Hebrew and Aramaic languages. Well, Jesus and his whole following were oriented toward all that. And so we're trying to recapture that. And so we're talking about the Gospels very much from a Jewish point of view. We're looking at specific issues, touching on culture, religious ideas, how the Old Testament was interpreted, and so forth, so that today's reader, who doesn't know much about that, can learn a lot. And I'm really pleased this book has been out for several months. It's catching on. People like it. The reviews are very positive. So I'm really glad we did it. Well, I'm really glad you did it as well. Now, you write that the, or one of your writers suggests that the Gospels are unique as they are complex as Jesus. What do you mean by that? Are they unique in that in the tradition of the time they stand out uh, in terms of their placement following the Old Testament? How are they unique and as complex as Jesus himself? Well, it's an interesting analogy. You know, the Gospels have been studied for almost 2,000 years now, and scholars are still debating precisely how they should be understood. Are they biography? Are they history exactly? What is the model that they can be compared to? They're somewhat like Old Testament stories. I think of Elijah and Elisha in the books of Kings, uh, a little bit like that. Are they really like the Greco-Roman biographies written about, say, uh, the emperors? Uh, you know, and so that's what makes them so unique. There's nothing quite like them. You don't have it in rabbinic literature exactly, the Talmud or the Midrash, the other writings that are Jewish. And so the Gospels are unique and they're perplexing. And this is all the more reason for this handbook to help people understand that. And so Jesus, of course, is complex. I mean, here we are Mm -hmm. 2,000 years later, and you have the best minds in the world studying him, talking about him, and you can't quite find the right box to put him into. So, you know, what kind of Messiah is he when he speaks of being the Son of God? Exactly what does he mean? And I find that intriguing. It's deep. It's rich. It's complex. But study pays off. And as you dig into the sources, we learn a whole lot more. And the handbook orients the readers. You know, the handbook doesn't explain everything. What it does is it introduces people to the important topics and shows them how they can be pursued further. Um, The book suggests that the book of Matthew enjoyed a pride of place. We don't think about how it's placed before the other three Gospels in what was the emerging fourfold Gospel collection that emerged over time. Talk a bit about Matthew and the importance of pride of place in terms of where it fits into the canon. Oh, yes, that's a, that's a good topic because the early church rightly recognized once there were four Gospels circulating that Matthew really formed a neat bridge between the Old Testament And the New Testament that was coming together with the Gospels, the Book of Acts, several letters by Paul and others, they recognize that, you know what, Matthew begins quoting the Old Testament, talking about Jesus' genealogy in a way that takes you right back to the genealogies in the Old Testament. It's one text after another is cited as fulfilled. One law of Moses after another is discussed as to what it really means. And so Matthew became a bridge that connects the two Testaments. And the church, I think, was wise in deciding that Matthew's gospel should be the very first book of the four gospels, the very first book 
of the New Testament. That made good sense a long time ago. It still makes good sense today. And there's much more that can be said about Matthew. Jesus is presented like the new Moses, the new lawgiver, the ultimate interpreter of the law, the ultimate fulfiller of prophecy. All of this is very important. The Gospel of John stands apart from the other three Gospels. Can you talk a a bit about that in the ongoing study of this unique Gospel? Oh, John is fascinating. Matthew, Mark, and Luke parallel each other very closely. They share a whole lot of material. Almost two-thirds is common in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That's why they're called synoptic. You can see them together side by side in columns, but not with John. John does overlap here and there, of course, but John is filled with unique material, and Jesus' teaching style is different. And so there, a lot of people say, well, it's, it's wisdom. It's Jewish wisdom themes coming into play, and I think there's truth to that. The Jewish people, the Jewish interpreters in Jesus' time were fascinated with wisdom, the whole idea that God's wisdom resided in heaven with God, that God's word was in heaven with God. Well, John says that's right. That word and that wisdom became a human, became incarnate, became in flesh. And that's a good way of discussing who Jesus is. And so John runs with that. And, uh, of course, it has that famous first verse. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And that's one of the most famous verses in the world. And so it makes John stand alone in a a lot of interesting ways. And so there's a whole body of literature Mm -hmm. and scholarship today focused on the Gospel of John. Coming up. Oh, I think most uh, anybody with a Jewish background would realize that Jesus is doing what Moses talked about. More with Craig Evans on the Jewish roots of the gospel. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. As 21st century believers, we see Christ as we look backward from our vantage point in history to his But it can be challenging to understand how much of his life was shaped by first century Judaism as he lived and ministered near the Sea of Galilee. Let's pick up my conversation with Craig Evans, editor of the Handbook on the Jewish Roots of the Gospel. We'll pick up the conversation on the Gospel of John. How would his gospel have been interpreted in his time by Jewish believers and those who are yet to believe? Would they have understood and recognized the Jesus he describes in the first 11 chapters of the Gospel of John? Oh, I think most uh, anybody with a Jewish background would realize that Jesus is doing what Moses talked about. Moses, at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses provided us with five books. The first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Near the end of Deuteronomy, he warns the people who have been rebellious, who built the golden calf, and that generation that's passing away in the wilderness, he's warning their successors, the next generation, you better be careful. You don't want to be blind. You don't want to have eyes that don't see, ears that don't hear, a mind that can't think. That could happen because despite the signs that have been done in the wilderness that should have led you to have faith in God, to trust God, you haven't. You've done foolish things, idolatrous things. Well, John picks up on that. And so that's the way Jesus talks in the Gospel of John. He performs signs. 
So you get this interesting comparison and contrast between Jesus and Moses, and John's gospel really runs with it. And so in a sense, John's gospel is the most Jewish gospel of all four. Um, The Jews of that day doubted the Messiah would be crucified with such dishonor. How can we better understand how that sign was misinterpreted or wasn't recognized at all? Well, the early Christians, Jesus himself, they all knew that. And so that's why Jesus compares himself to the suffering servant. He's described in Isaiah chapters 52 and 53. And John's gospel, which we've been talking about, actually quotes verses from the suffering servant song and talks about how it's necessary for Jesus to be lifted up. And it's a real interesting wordplay. Lift up can mean exalted, but it can also mean literally raised up on a cross. And so Jesus in John is teaching that by being lifted up on a cross, which is horrible and looks a lot like defeat, it actually is his success. He accomplishes his will. He is raised up, returns to heaven, and becomes Savior of the world. And so there's this great paradox in the fourth gospel. That's what the writer of the fourth gospel is running with. He wants people to see that in being crucified, Jesus wasn't defeated. He, in fact, had victory and defeated the world. And so that's John for you. And John is very exalted, high Christology compared to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Thank you for joining us for the Christian Outlook. There's more to my conversation with Craig Evans. You can listen to the full interview at ChristianOutlook.com. And while you're at our site, remember to subscribe to our podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm Georgine Rice. Join us again next time for the Christian Outlook. If you are 65 or older, you know this. Watching your hard-earned dollars fly out the window on health care costs is frustrating. Well, here's something that can really help, and it's worth taking a minute to look into. MediShare 65+. Plus. MediShare is a community of Christians who share each other's health care bills, and it really is a community, too. People encourage and pray for each other. Well, MediShare 65 Plus is a low-cost option for those with Medicare Parts A and B, and it fills in the gaps where Medicare stops. It's a great way to fight inflation, too. You can lock in one low monthly price for up to 10 years. And it's easy. You can use any Medicare-approved doctor or get 24-7 telehealth access from the comfort of your home. Very worth looking into during Medicare open enrollment, which ends December 7th. If you join right now, your second month share will be free. So don't miss this chance. Call 833-SHARE-24. That's 833-S-H-A-R-E-24. 833-SHARE-24.